As we conclude this set of meetings, I want to share with you a message entitled, Too Many Members. But before we get started, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so, so very much for this Sabbath day. And now, as we come to the final message in this series of meetings, I ask that you would give us spiritual insight to see what you want from us. Help us to be the people you want us to be, to go where you want us to go. Lord, help us to not be merely members, but Lord, help us to see what you have in store for us. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, the the great question has been, is God truly love? And I feel that as we've studied the Word of God, and in fact, the more you study the Word of God, that answer becomes more and more, not just a Well, probably or possibly, but a definitive yes. In fact, an exclamatory, absolutely 100% yes, God is love. He created us in the first place. He sent his son to die for us when we sinned and fell short of his glory. He's given us the plan of redemption. He's given us a work to do. He gives us so many abundant goodnesses and goodness and graces. And we are so thankful to the Lord for that, that he is a God of love. Now, what I want to do for just a few moments here is to recap what love actually is. And now that we see that God is love, what would it be like if we would be people of love as well? What would that actually look like in the life? So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Page 1107 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is more commonly referred to as the love chapter. The Apostle Paul writes about the importance of love, and he gives us an interesting definition of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll just start with verse 1. He says, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am what? Nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I have give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And again, he's talking about the spirit of prophecy and understanding the truths of God's word and all of these things that we've covered in these meetings. And if at the end of that we don't have love, it accounts for nothing, according to the Apostle Paul. Then he goes on to explain what love is. Love suffers long and is kind. Does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek. And here's our key. What does love not seek? Its own. It's not about itself, but it's serving others, right? Again, notice what it says earlier. It does not envy. Now, what is envy? What does it mean to envy something? To want something. For whom? For yourself. To want something for yourself. Does not parade itself. Doesn't show off. Talk big about itself, right? Is not puffed up like arrogant. Have a big head full of pride. Love does not do those things. It does not behave rudely. It simply does not seek its own love seeks for others and love always manifests in not just a mere sympathy and not just a mere affection but it actually is put into motion it's evidenced by deeds john chapter 3 perhaps the most well-known passage in all of scripture explains god's love for us page 1027 john chapter 3 and verse 16 jesus here says, for God so loved the world that he, what? Gave. See, lo- uh, to the opposite of love is to take. It envies, it parades itself, it's puffed up, it seeks its own. But love does not seek its own, it seeks for others. And God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves so much that he gave. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, that's a little typo there, verse 25, the Apostle Paul explains that husbands should love their wives even as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? By giving himself for her. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Let's go to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. In the light of the love of Jesus Christ, notice the counsel of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start on page 11, 29 actually. Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore, verse 1, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, page 11, 29, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So if we've received the love of God, we should have the same love demonstrated in our lives. And what does that look like? Verse 3, let how much? Nothing be done through what? Selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of whom? Well, so if God loves us and he gives himself for us, then we, if we respond to that love, if we align ourselves, if we connect ourselves with Jesus Christ, then that same love should be seen and evidenced in our lives. Each of us should look not only for ourselves, but also for others. Matthew chapter 7. Page 940 in your pew Bible, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus speaks in these words. It's a principle. It's known as the golden rule. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore, here's his summation here of this part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore... Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. He says everything in the Old Testament, all Scripture, the whole purpose of everything is summed up in this. Whatever you would like to have for you, you do for others. Whatever you would like for yourself, do instead for someone else. And we know this as what? This is called the golden rule. The golden rule, the simplest, most succinct, in fact, it's the simplest condensation of all Scripture in one sentence. Whatever you'd have men do to you, do unto others. Very simple. Now, let's look at our fill-in-the-blanks. In contrast, of course, to Lucifer's selfishness, God intends his people to be governed by love. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is self, self-centered, self-seeking, self-aggrandizing, self-focused. But of course, Jesus Christ is the opposite of that. He's focused on others. For God so loved the world that he gave, who loved him and gave himself for us. So you see the two governments being contrasted. There's God's government, which is love, and Satan's, which is selfishness, self-seeking. Love, then, is the principle 
Not a feeling, not a flight of fancy, not a mere affection, but love is a deep-seated principle of giving yourself for others. Love is the principle of giving yourself for others. Now, speaking of this golden rule, this summation of all Scripture in this one principle, the great principle, the great working operating principle of life in God's government is this love, the self-sacrificing, giving for others love. Sometimes I, I fear that we have too small of an understanding of what Jesus meant with do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Sometimes we think of trifling small things, like I'm going to be, which aren't unimportant, but they're just small scale. I'm going to open the door for someone. I'm going to send them a card. I'm going to look out for the little interests. And that's excellent. That's excellent. But one of my favorite passages from a little book by L.G. White called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, a little commentary on this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a little book called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, speaking of this golden rule principle of putting others first. Notice what she says. There is yet a deeper significance to the golden rule. Everyone who has been made a steward of the manifold grace of God. You've been entrusted with the deep riches of God's love and His grace. If you have received from God, everyone who has been made a steward of the manifold grace of God is called upon to, what's that next word? Impart to souls in ignorance and darkness, even as, were He in their place, He would desire them to impart to Him. So now, let's say that we've come through this series of meetings or you've been in the church for a very long time and you've grown in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've studied his word. You see his character more clearly. You're more in love with him every day, which should be the walk of the Christian all the time, growing in Christ, getting closer to him, seeking his face, studying his word. And as you do, you, become, you have a clearer conception of his character. You have a clearer understanding, a deeper appreciation for his love. You have a more firm foundation for your faith. You have a doctrinal root in solid rock, and now that you have been a steward of these things, the Lord has entrusted this to you, you've been you're receiving these blessings, now you have a responsibility to give that same blessing to others who are not where you are. Okay? So I'm going to ask a question here. How many people in this room, not just from this most recent campaign, but either sometime in your life, either through a personal set of Bible studies or a public evangelism campaign have come into this church, either as a visitor or a member. How many of you here, because someone, either personally or publicly, praise the Lord, fantastic, someone shared with you the truths of God's word and you have come into this faith at some point that has happened for most everyone. Now, now I want you to think back, where were you before you knew things like the beautiful truth of the second coming and the great controversy and that God has a plan for the remedy for this universe that sin will be no more and, and, and someday Jesus is coming again soon and he gives us the Sabbath rest and he gives the truth about his role in the sanctuary and the prophetic guidance that the word of God gives. All of these tremendous blessings. Where were you before you knew that? Now this is not ask out loud. This is not testimony time. All of us hopefully have a testimony from before Christ and then after, right? But I want you to think in your mind, where were you, not just geographically, 
right? I don't want to be like, well, I was in Indiana. I'm, I'm not asking about that, right? Spiritually, where were you before you had the light of this truth? At some point, you didn't know what you know now. You were in darkness. And then imagine if your life had never, you'd never been introduced to these truths from that point, where would your life have gone without the truth and love of Jesus Christ? Where would you be now if you hadn't had someone talk to you and lead you to Jesus through his word? What would your life be like? Now, understand that that person you were is the person many people still are in the world. They don't know. Now, ignorance is not saying that they are stupid or incapable. They just have never had the opportunity to learn. And apparently, the deeper significance of the golden rule is not just merely opening the doors for people or sending thank you cards or doing the nice little things, but on the big issues of life, the big understandings, the doctrinal truths that you now possess, you have a responsibility to give those to others. Not to merely come into the church as a member, but friends, to go out and be a missionary for someone else. This is the burden of our study today. Let me give some biblical examples. I believe there's a typo in this next one. If you're going to look for Mark 19, you're going to be here all day long. But Mark chapter 5 records something very significant for our study today. Mark chapter 5, as was read for our scripture reading, Mark chapter 5, Jesus has an interesting encounter of course, all of Jesus' encounters are interesting, of course. But Mark chapter 5 and verse 18 records, And when he got into the boat, by the way, that's page 972 in your pew Bible, Mark 5, 18. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him. Now, isn't that odd? People always want to come to Jesus and hear Jesus is saying, go away. But is it because he doesn't like the man? No. Is it because the man is weird and he's going to want to? No, 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 no. His issue isn't the man. His issue is the role that he has for that man to do. Right? Again, verse 19. However, Jesus did not permit him but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them the great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Jesus says, it'd be fine for you to come with me, but you have a work to do here. I want you to not get on the boat. I want you to stay here. I want you to go home and specifically tell whom? Your friends. Why would he tell him to go tell his friends? Think about the logic of it. They need to know, right? But also, does he have influence with them? Yes. Now, there's people who had never met Jesus, who certainly didn't know his disciples. They were strangers. But he said, but you have an influence with these people that none of us do. You already have an in. They listen to you. They respect you. In fact, they're probably going to like you more now that you're not demon-possessed. You know? And now you can be a living testimony. You're a billboard. You're a walking advertisement for what Jesus Christ can do. You were there, and now you're here. Now I need you to go back there and don't join them, but lead them out. You go home, tell your friends, and tell them the great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. And so verse 20, because he loves Jesus, he keeps his commandment, right? Verse 20, and he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. 
he sent him out. Now, he was going to join Jesus Christ, but he said, no, 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 don't just merely join me and stick with me. Now you go out and be a missionary. He wanted something more for him than mere membership in the body of Christ. He wanted a missionary put to work right away. John chapter 4. Look at another example. Go to the right in your Bible, John chapter 4, to page 1028 in your pew Bible. Jesus has an encounter with another person who has had a rough background, a difficult life, was in darkness, and Jesus shared with her the light of truth. John chapter 4. Now we'll start in verse 28. This is the encounter with a woman at the well, and after Jesus tells her all the things about her and really reveals himself to her, we see the response. Verse 28. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So she leaves that trailer. She's like, you got to meet this guy. I think there's a good chance. It's quite possible that I just met the Messiah. You need to come find out for yourself. Then they went out of the city and came to him. So they came in response to her word. Now, skip down to verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of what? Of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Many people believed because of her. Now, they believed in him, but it wasn't because of him. Is that clear? Now, of course, they put their faith in him. They believe in him. But the reason that they are even introduced to him at all is because she went home and wouldn't shut her mouth. you got to meet this guy. It's quite, and she starts telling her story, her testimony. She testified. Testimony is your account of what occurred, right? This man came and told me, and this and this and this, and boy, it's a little embarrassing, but I might as well tell you because it's already public, blah, 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 and told me everything I ever did, and it's quite possible he could be the Christ. Now, you go meet him. I'm going to go meet him. And, blah, 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 blah. and it says that many, not some, not a few, not a couple, not just two or three, but many of the people of that town believed, and it specifically says why they believed. They believed in him, again, verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. My question is, what if she went home and shut her mouth? She had a role to play. She had a part to play. She had family and friends and co-workers and neighbors and loved ones who she could reach. And the first response of a committed, converted Christian is to go find someone else to bring to Jesus. The first impulse of every person born into the kingdom of God is to be a missionary, to find somebody else. Let me give you, I really like this illustration. Go to John chapter 1, this example, just a few pages back. Now, if I were to ask you what you know about the apostle John, you could probably tell me a few things. He was very close to Jesus. He was... At, it was near in proximity to some of the greatest things that Jesus did. He was, he was known as the Beloved. He was later on the island of Patmos, and he became John the Revelator, right? You can tell me, if I were to ask you five things, for example, about the Apostle Peter, you could probably do that. Five things you know about him, what his life was like. Well, you know, he was always loud talking, and he, he was the one who walked in the water, and he was also the one who fell into the water. He was the one who, you know, Jesus said, talk to him about the, the rock 
being built and had that conversation with him. And then right after that, he called him Satan, get thee behind me. And all this, there's a very, he denied his Christ. And he came, you got a lot about Peter. Okay, Peter, John, James, you could probably do that. Several apostles, you're no more than others. But I'm guessing if I ask you, tell me five things about Andrew. You couldn't do it. Now you're sitting there, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know I've heard the name. He was one of the 12, okay? That maybe it's two facts. He has a name, and it's Andrew. And he was among the disciples. But if you study Scripture, you find something interesting emerge about Andrew. John chapter 1, look at verse 40. Here at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the transition from John the Baptist and his disciples now to Jesus, and he starts gathering his own followers. John's ministry starts to decrease. Jesus' starts to increase. And we find in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. And what does it say after the comma? Simon Peter's brother. (laughs) So what's one fact we know about Andrew? He's Simon Peter's brother. Almost every single reference to Andrew in all the scripture is not just Andrew. It's Andrew, comma, Simon Peter's brother. Basically, hey, there's Simon Peter and Andrew. That's how the Bible introduces this guy, okay? In fact, it goes on from verse 40 again. One of the two who heard John and followed, as John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. How did Peter come to Jesus? Through his brother, Andrew. Now, we don't know much about Andrew, but we do know that he won at least one person, and that was his brother, and we know a lot about his brother. Simon Peter comes to Jesus through the ministry, through the influence of his brother, Andrew. In fact, it goes on. I'm sorry, and it brought him to Jesus. Then when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So he sees Peter coming. He's like, I'm going to do great things with you, Peter. And Andrew kind of drifts back into the background. It all transitioned to the attention on Peter. But he wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Andrew. Now, let's go to John chapter 6. Let's look at another example. The only, by the way, we're going to look at the only three substantive times outside of a mere list where Andrew is referenced at all in the ministry of Jesus. The first one was he believed and brought his brother, and then everything switches to his brother, right? He's just Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, let's go to John chapter 6, and we'll see another encounter with Andrew. Page 1031, John chapter 6. We're going to go to verses 8. And nine. It says here, of course, this is the feeding of the 5,000. And when they had no food, they didn't know what to do. Where should we buy bread, they asked. And they said, well, it's too expensive. What are we going to do? Then verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, comma, what's it call him? Simon Peter's brother. <laughs> it's like you always have to be reminded, who is this guy? Oh, oh yeah, Simon's brother, right? And now Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? 
who brought the boy to Jesus? It was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And then Jesus said, make the people sit down. And he starts to do the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. If it was up to the other ones, I don't know what we're going to do. Send them away. Uh, we, we don't have enough money to do this. And Simon Peter's brother, Andrew, says, well, there is this boy. And Jesus said, no, we can work with that. He brings someone to Jesus. John chapter 12. The last time that Andrew is mentioned in the gospel record in any substantive way, John chapter 12, later in the ministry of Jesus, his, his, uh, his fame is growing, if you will, his, his reputation, popularity. This is Jesus, of course. And now it says in verse 20, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to what? See Jesus. So what should Philip do? Take them to Jesus, right? But you can almost tell, it's like, well, I don't know, these are Greeks, and it's, it's a big Passover, and it's a very Jewish thing. I, I, and he was kind of like, oh, uh, uh. So who do you think he calls on? Watch this now. Again, there are these Greeks who wish to see Jesus, saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Philip wasn't sure what to do, so he goes to Andrew. Andrew, what should we do? He's well, well, the last time I didn't know what to do, I just took him to Jesus. When in doubt, just lead him to Jesus, and Jesus will know what to do with them. I don't know how to deal with Greeks. Uh, I don't know either. Let's go to Jesus. I don't know what to do with this food situation. I don't know. Let's go to Jesus. Uh, uh, Simon Peter, you want to come with me? Let's meet Jesus. Apparently, Andrew's only real skill is taking people to Jesus. What a great ministry to have. We have no record of him walking on the water or doing any miraculous thing. He just slowly, behind the scenes, he's just Simon Peter's brother, but every time he meets someone and he's not sure what to do, I don't know, let's go see Jesus. When in doubt, lead people to Jesus. We need a church full of Simon Peter's brothers. Turn the page, if you would. The model ministry. This is what Jesus wanted to see out of his disciples. Now, I, again, Peter himself was very outspoken, and the Lord did great things through them, but I think more than great ability, the Lord is looking for availability. People who will just do what he asked them to do. Page 968, Mark chapter 1 and verse 17. Jesus says, and again, we'll, in fact, verse 16, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. Notice, Andrew what? His brother. It's not just Simon and Andrew, it's Simon and Andrew, you know, his brother, <laughs> casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will have you watch me win people. Is that what he said? Of course not. He says, follow me, and I will make what? You, fishers of men. When he formally called them and said, all right, guys, you're with me now. Come after me, and I will make you. What would, they knew going into it that Jesus was training them to be soul winners. That's what they were going to. Follow me, and this is what I'm going to do with you. And of course, they leave all and they follow Jesus. But that was Jesus' objective with his disciples, was not just to... Because you ever wonder why? Doesn't it seem weird that you would just have a cadre of people that wander around with you? Why did Jesus have a crew, you know, a bunch of people that would just kind of hang out around with him, a gang of... 
Why? Wouldn't they kind of get in the way? Or maybe they're assistants when you have to do miracles and stuff like this. But what was the purpose of Jesus having disciples in the first place? Was to show them and teach them and train them to be ministers for him. Right? The purpose of having disciples is so that they could go reach other people. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. Luke chapter 9. Page 10.02, Luke chapter 9, we see this development of Jesus' ministry. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Verse 2, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Notice that these are all things that Jesus up to that point had been doing, and now he says, you are with me, and you think, well, I didn't think Jesus gave them that power until the Great Commission, after Jesus was all done. No, 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 no. Jesus gave them training and practice while he was still there with them, so they come back and report, and he was going to be their mentor, their guide in how to reach people. He said, I'm going to give you power and authority to do these things. Now you go do the ministry that I've been doing in my name. So he put them in, he sent them out. And he gives them instructions on how to go. But even during that three and a half years, he wasn't just saying, well, you just stick with me, and then when I leave, then you start working. During his own ministry, Jesus put them to work, put into practice the things that he had shown them. He was a good mentor. They were his apprentice ministers. In fact, let's go over one more page now. Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And then he said to them, the harvest truly is what? But the laborers are few. So what is he training them to be? Laborers. He said there's a great harvest field and the laborers are few. Now again, I I love how Jesus does this. He sends them on ahead. You work where I'm about to go, and if there's any problems, I'll come along and help and guide, and I'll train you. But you start putting your faith into practice. What you've received from me, I want you to go and start giving to others. This was their ministry. And he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Notice what he says. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice he doesn't just say, Lord, the work is so great, let's just pray that the Holy Spirit does a work. Now, is there anything wrong with asking the Lord to send the Holy Spirit? Of course not. But what we should be doing is asking the Lord to send us full of the Holy Spirit instead of sending the Holy Spirit instead of us. I think there's plenty of people who would love to watch God raise up a church, win souls to Him, put on a crusade, and watch the Lord work, but that's not how the Lord works. The Lord works through people. And he sends them out. He trains them, he equips them, and he sends them out because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I praise the Lord. They didn't say, the harvest is great, the laborers are few, so pray that the Lord, pray to the Lord that the harvest will be less. Right? Wouldn't it be awful? He's like, the harvest is great, so pray to the Lord that those people who are interested in coming to Jesus will kind of turn off that interest and kind of cool their jets for a little while because we only have so many workers, and it's going to take us time. 
No, no, no. His thing is there's few laborers, a great harvest. So what we want to do is instead of decrease the harvest, we want to increase the laborers. We need more hands on deck. So he sends out his 12, then he sends out 70 others. He said, the harvest is great. We need more. We need more. Acts chapter 1. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he comes back to the very same thing he started at the beginning of his ministry. You will be my witnesses. Acts chapter 1. Just before he is ascended into heaven, he says, we'll start with verse 7, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, comes into someone's life, the true evidence of the Holy Spirit being in their life is not speaking in tongues or healing, or having the gift of prophecy, or anything. The true evidence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life is being a witness for Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. You'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. And of course, think about it from their perspective. These are all Jewish men, right? So where's the first place they're supposed to go work? In their home city. Jerusalem. Then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. He said, we're going to reach the world. We're going to start right here at home and go from there. Now, let's go to our fill-in-the-blanks here. I want to underline this. I want to underscore the importance of this. In God's plan, mission work starts in your own hometown, then works its way out. Okay? This has been the plan all along. Any new converts, any, the demon possessed, the woman of the well, go back home, go back home, go back home. To the disciples even, he says, start here in Jerusalem, then go to Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Mission work, according to Christ, starts at home. With your friends, your family, your co-labors, your neighbors, your, your, all the different people, whatever your sphere of influence already is, that little space defined as your life, that's where mission work starts first. Now, praise the Lord, it doesn't end there, but that's where it starts. I believe it was Mark Finley who said this, you're not to be a missionary where you aren't until you're a missionary where you are. Somehow, the devil has put into our mind that mission work is far away. Right? When you talk about raising money for the missionaries, automatically you're thinking of a jungle or a desert or some place that you have to go by plane or by boat or by train or by mule or something. You have to go way far, 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 far away, and that's where mission work happens. Some mission work happens there because there's mission work all over the world, but true missionary endeavors start right here at home. I want to be clear about that. Again, why? think about this. Why would the Lord send you somewhere you aren't to do something you're not doing already now, right? I think it would be very awkward if I got a call from, you know, some foreign place, maybe, go, you know, go to Asia or South America or some other part of the world, and they said, we need you to come here and be a surgeon. I said, well, it must be the call of the Lord. Let me get on an airplane and go. I've never practiced surgery one moment in my life. So what in the world? Well, I'm far away. That makes me a surgeon. Please, <laughs> What makes you a surgeon is you practice doing surgery, right? And then if your skills are needed, they'll ask you to go somewhere else. Why in the world would the Lord take you around the world to do something you're not doing right here at home? Now, I have no problem with foreign mission work. 
If you want to go practice there, that's fine. But I'm telling you, don't for a moment get anesthetized to think that, hey, five years ago I spent a week in the jungle, so I'm, I've done my mission work. No, 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 no. Mission work, friends, starts at home, right here. Notice this. When someone says mission trip, I guarantee that every one of us likely thinks of a travel to a foreign land, and basically our view of missionary is someone who goes away. Most likely the mission trip God has in mind for you isn't to Mongolia, it's to Meyer. It isn't to Libya, it's to the laundromat. It isn't to Kenya, it's to Kmart. How many times we go by all seeking the lost and lost and lost and lost, and we're like, Lord, please do a mission work in Brazil. Oh, if I only had the opportunity to go and do mission, oh, I would love to be a mission. Friends, there are people right here. You already know them. We're all trying to get on the boat, and Jesus says, no, 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 stay home. <laughs> this is a mission field. And we should open our eyes and see the harvest truly is ripe. The greatest need in the Seventh Adventist Church is not people willing to go across the ocean, but people willing to go across the street. Not people willing to go around the world, but people willing to go around the block. Just start doing something is what we need. We need Simon Peter's brothers. We've got plenty of Simon Peter's. Right? We have Mark Finley, David Asher. You name all the big names who preach in the large crowds, and they go and do a form. Praise the Lord for what they're doing. But more than Simon Peter's, we need Simon Peter's brothers to stay at home, to go to the grocery store, to go to the bank, at those family reunions. Start using whatever influence you have, not in an obnoxious, head-butting kind of awful way, right? But in a Christ-like way, start leading people to Jesus. This is the greatest need of the church today. This is where we come up with this title, Too Many Members. I think the Seventh Avenue Church, even though I'm proud of our growth, I think it's great that there's 18 million members or so on, 25 million visiting on a Sabbath. This Sabbath morning, or all around the world, close to 25 million people are sitting in Seventh Avenue churches. Many of them are members, but how many of them are missionaries? Think about this. We have so many members, and that's great. But we don't want mere membership. We want mere missionaries. And when you come into the Seventh Avenue Church, you talk about the Sabbath, the state of the dead, the sanctuary, the second coming, the scriptures, the spirit of prophecy. You go on and on and on about all these wonderful, beautiful truths that I believe are doctrinally true. But we must not lose the sight of the fact that all of these wonderful truths are blessings to God. And now that we have been blessed, we are to the same proportion responsible for blessing someone else. That was the purpose of God's people in the very beginning. When God chose to have a people, you are blessed to be a blessing. He never once said, I want just to have a people I can bestow my blessings on and you will just, you know, enjoy, live it up, right? No, 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 no. God blesses so that we will bless others. We have far too many members and not nearly enough missionaries. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus looks forward, page 960 in your pew Bible, Jesus looks forward to the day just before his coming when mission work will be accomplished. It's not a pipe dream, it's not a fairy tale. If God has a work to do, he wants to complete it, but he wants to complete it in you. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom might be preached. Is that what it says? No, no, no. It says it will be preached. 
Someone is going to work for Jesus. The question is not, will it happen? The question is, will it be you? And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then what will happen? The end will come. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for the end to come. I'm done here. I've seen enough, I've seen enough violence and crime. I've seen enough sorrow and sadness and heartache. I love it. I love life. But I'm ready to have that greater life that he wants to offer us when Jesus comes again. But apparently, one of the precursors to Jesus coming again is telling people about Jesus. We got plenty of members, but how many missionaries are there? Revelation chapter 12, I want you to notice this one. For those of you who might be struggling with temptation or struggling with some uh, distraction, something the devil is obstacle, he's putting in your way to faith and he's trying to stop your growth in Christ, notice one of the most effective ways to beat Satan. Revelation chapter 12, to have the victory over temptation. Notice Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the what? Word of their testimony. What's a testimony? Your story from your mouth, from your perspective. You want to overcome Satan? Start working with the saving of some other soul. Friends, one of the best things you can do to preserve your soul is look to save someone else's. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. That self-sacrificing, self-denying worker that Jesus Christ was, he's looking to replicate in his people. This is what Christ wants to see, is Christ-likeness replicated. Not just Christ-believers, but Christ-fulfillers, people who will be like Jesus in their very lives. And of course, what was Jesus' life? All he did to do was look to seek and to save him that was lost. Revelation chapter 14 gives a description, verse 6, of these last day remnant messengers and what is it they're doing. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Notice what these people in God's last day remnant church are doing. They're preaching the everlasting gospel in the context of the hour of his judgment, saying, if you want to get right with the Lord, worship him who created it. It's a call back to his commandments. Basically, people are out there. Notice how they're saying it. And they didn't say it with a timid voice or a quivering voice or in a whisper. It says they said it in a loud voice. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. This is the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist churches, the mandate that Christ has left with us to give the everlasting gospel couched in the present truth of Bible prophecy. This is what we're supposed to do. And now that we are the benefactors of that grace, now that we've had that bestowed upon us, we have a responsibility to share that with someone else. We are called to be the three angels' messengers. Second Peter chapter 3. I know many of us are looking forward to the coming of the Lord. I know I certainly am. But apparently there's a rhetorical question we should be asking ourselves as we see the day of Christ approaching. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 10. Notice it says, 
unequivocally, without any shaking, without any hesitation, but the day of the Lord, what's that next word? Will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Notice that will, it will, it will, it will. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, here's the question we should be asking ourselves. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for, and what's that next word? Hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The question we should be asking ourselves is not how do I survive or how do I hang on or how do I, how do I, how do I, but the question is better, how can I win someone else? How is my personal conduct, what is my behavior like, how is my Christ-likeness? Am I just claiming the grace of God or am I asking, Lord, turn me from merely a member into a missionary? Is this the call of our heart? I hope it is. As we go to our fill-in-the-blank, please, please banish the thought that your church has a message for your friends, family, neighbors, and co-workers. They need to hear. Please don't think, well, man, this is great. I wonder how my church will tell them. Friends, you are the church of Jesus Christ. Your church doesn't have a message they need to hear. You have a message they need to hear. This is the great paradigm shift that needs to occur inside of God's last day remnant people. It's not, boy, I hope we get the message straight. No, no, no. The message is fine. What we're looking for now is messengers. We have a message, but where are the missionaries? We've got plenty of members, but where are those who are going to minister to others, right? We have too many members and not enough missionaries. Now, I'm not asking you to drop your membership, right? I'm asking you to, I'm challenging you to increase your missionary zeal. To say, Lord, give me something. Now, we're going to have, by the way, another evangelism campaign coming up next July. It's going to be happening again. So between now and then, I want to challenge you with this thought. Find someone in your life, someone that you work with, someone you know, someone you, you have an influence with that I will never see in my lifetime. But you know that you are the conduit that Jesus wants to work to reach that person. I want you to think about it, pray about it, and between now and then, start working to lead them to Jesus. Give them literature. Invite them to church. Bring them to meetings. Give them some sort of rabbit. Help them out. Offer to give them Bible studies. You know how many Bible studies don't start because people don't ask? You're guaranteed not to have a Bible, with someone, Bible study with someone if you never talk about it. But yeah, they might reject you, but I'd rather, I'd rather fail trying, Right? than to guarantee failure by not even opening our mouths, right? We need more missionaries. we got too many members. We need more missionaries. So the challenge is before these next meetings, because our meetings, our series of meetings is coming to a close right now. But friends, your campaign is starting today. Does that make sense? These public meetings are coming to a close, but you have a personal ministry to do. And don't be like, I don't know how I would give a Bible study. You've got a whole rack of literature out there. Go for it. I don't know, just bring them a CD, bring them the DVD, bring them the resources, offer the Bible, do whatever, just stir what you've got and see what the Lord does for it. Like Simon Peter's brother Andrew, bring the little lad to Jesus. I don't know what this can do. Let Jesus bless it, but let Jesus work through you. Has it made sense today? Praise the Lord. We're going to sing a closing song, and 
while we do that, I don't want to just be a hollow thing. I want you to be seriously strategizing in your mind, how can I reach some? Who does the Lord have me to reach? How am I going to get there? Should I use little tracks? Should I use my... What should I do? But Lord, use me to be more than a member. Make me truly a missionary. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.